Okay, we will continue with the study of the Aki Vachagota Sutta, the discourse to Vachagota on fire. And since <laughs> there were not so many people who came on the Tuesday, <laughs> and since it was about almost about more than two weeks ago, then I better review some of the material that was covered. Okay, in this sutta, the wanderer Vachagota approaches the Buddha and asks about the famous ten speculative views which were being debated by the different ascetics and philosophers at the time of the Buddha. That is, whether the world is eternal, whether it's not eternal, finite, infinite, and so on. And to each of these, the Buddha says that he does not hold any of these views. And then when he says this, um, Bhachagota is somewhat confused, perplexed. And he says, how is it that you do not hold any of these views? What danger do you see that you do not take up any of these views? And then the Buddha says that each of these views, this is in paragraph 14, is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, and so on, beset by suffering, and it does not lead to dispassion, fading away, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, nibbana. Then Vachagota asks, then does Master Gotama hold any type of view at all? Is, does he hold any of these any type of speculative view? And the Buddha says that speculative views, these are something that has been put away by the Tathagata. For the Tathagata, the enlightened one, has seen that such is material form, such is origin, such its disappearance, such as feeling, perception, the mental formations, consciousness, such its origin, such its disappearance. Therefore, with the destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of all conceivings, all excogitations, all eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit, the Tathagata is liberated through not clinging. In other words, the Buddha is saying that all these types of views, these speculative views, these all arise out of ignorance, which is not seeing and understanding the five aggregates, their arising and their passing away. And since the Buddha has seen the arising and passing away of these five aggregates, he's given up all eye-making and mind-making based on these five aggregates. And all of these speculative views are just elaborations of this eye-making and mind-making based on the five aggregates. And by giving up this eye-making and mind-making, the Tathagata is liberated and he doesn't cling to any type of view. And now originally Bhachagota was interested in the question of the rebirth of the enlightened one, the Tathagata. And though the Buddha has refused to answer whether the Tathagata exists after death or not, now Bhachagota asks the same question in a somewhat different form. He says, when a bhikkhu's mind is liberated thus, that is, when he is an arahant, where does he reappear after death? Where is he reborn? Then the Buddha says, to say that he reappears or that he is reborn, that does not apply. That's not applicable or that's not valid. Then Bhachagota says, then is it the case that he is not reborn after death? And the Buddha says, to say that he is not reborn, that he does not reappear, that does not apply. 
and does he both reappear and not reappear? The Buddha rejects it. Then he neither reappears nor does not reappear. The Buddha rejects it. Okay, when the Buddha rejects these four alternatives, then Vajagota says, this is paragraph 17, he says, now I have fallen into bewilderment, Master Gotama. Here I have fallen into confusion and the measure of confidence or trust that I had gained from previous conversations with Master Gotama has now disappeared. And then the Buddha says, it is enough or is quite fitting for you to be bewildered. It is quite fitting for you to be confused. For this Dhamma, this doctrine is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning to be experienced by the wise. It is hard for you to understand it when you hold another view, accept another teaching, approve of another teaching, pursue a different training, and follow a different teacher. And so now sort of Bhachagota is asking questions which really are sort of probing into the very heart of the Dhamma, but yet he does not himself, he's not yet himself placed faith in the Dhamma and undertaken the training. He might be a disciple of another teacher, or actually it seems he's something of a skeptic who's just wandering around asking all the different spiritual teachers about their philosophies. And yet now the Buddha is not going to leave him completely in the dark, but he offers to sort of convey the point to him by means of a simile, by asking questions based on a simile. He says, suppose now that a fire is burning before you. Would you know this fire is burning before me? And he says, yes, I would. If someone were to ask you, Bacha, if someone were to ask you, Bacha, what does this fire burning before you burn in dependence on? What would you answer? And he says, being asked thus, I would say, this fire burning before me burns in dependence on its fuel, grass, and sticks. If this fire before you were to be extinguished, would you know that the fire has been extinguished? And he says, yes, I would know. Then if somebody were to ask you, when this fire before you was extinguished, in which direction did it go? To the east, the west, the north, or the south? Being asked thus, what would you answer? This is a series of questions which is sort of designed to trap the speaker. All the questions are invalid. When a fire goes out, one doesn't say it has gone in this direction or that direction, but simply that it has gone out, that it has become extinguished. And so, Bhachagota asks, or replies, he says that these questions do not apply, Master Gautam. The fire burned in dependence on its fuel of grass and sticks. When the fuel is used up, and if it does not get any more fuel, then being without fuel, it is said to be extinguished. Okay, this little exchange here actually has deeper implications than are immediately evident just by reading the text. I think that there's first a kind of implicit simile or analogy going, taking place. 
which is, I explained last time, that the fire represents what we would call the person or the empirical individual, which is the combination, <coughs> this unified combination of the five aggregates. But actually, actually, we'll compare the fire to the person and the five aggregates <coughs> are like the fuel, the five aggregates of clinging. And we could say that the act of continuously, continually feeding the fire, this is somewhat like upadana, like clinging or craving, tanha. And so in the case of the ordinary person, the ordinary person is like a fire which is constantly being fed by his craving and clinging with more and more fuel. And so when the ordinary person passes away, then it's like the fire being transferred from one stock of fuel to another stock of fuel. Or it's like, if you can imagine, like a string of fuel, of grass and twigs and sticks and the fire is lit in one place and there's a good wind blowing then the fire will travel along this line of grass and twigs constantly burning up a new supply and so not only is the person or individual sustained by this continual craving and clinging, but even the nature of personal existence, of individuality, the Buddha says it's like a fire. He says the all is burning, sabang adita. The eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind are burning. The form, sound, smells, taste, touches are burning. All the six types of consciousness are burning. Burning with the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. But now in the case of the Arahant or the Tathagata, there is no more, no more craving, no more clinging. So we could say that for the Tathagata, the Arahant, the act of feeding the fire has been stopped. There is no more piling more and more fuel onto the fire. And actually the fire, in this case the analogy is a little different since for the Arahant the fires of greed, hatred and delusion have been extinguished. And so in one sense there is no more fire, <laughs> but from the standpoint of the person or the individual, that continues. So that we could say is like the fire which continues to burn as long as these five aggregates exist. Now, according to the ancient Indian view of fire, it's somewhat different from the modern scientific view of fire. In the modern scientific view, one thinks that when the fire is extinguished, then it's just out, completely out. But according to the ancient Indian belief, I think coming back down from the, the time of the Vedas, it was believed that fire that we see is a manifestation of the omnipresent primordial fire element. This fire element is present everywhere and so when a fire is extinguished it goes to into what is called the unmanifest state or the indiscernible state, the imperceptible state. And I think this idea is also underlying the Buddha's <coughs> use of the fire simile. <coughs> so when the liberated one passes away at death, then 
it does, doesn't make any sense to ask where, where has he been reborn <coughs> since he has not been reborn anywhere. <coughs> and so therefore in the case of the liberated one, when one asks what happens to him at death, one doesn't say that he has been reborn anywhere or that he has not been reborn in the sense that he is some kind of lasting person or self which has been annihilated. That question comes <coughs> out of the annihilationist view. But rather, <coughs> rather in the case of the Arahant, what one says happens to him with his passing away is that he is Nibuto, which means on the one hand, extinguished, it's the word used to describe the extinguishing of the fire, but also the word Nibuta suggests the word Nibbana. It's actually treated in Pali as the past participle of the verb from which Nibbana comes. <coughs> and so when one says Nibuto, it means on the one hand that he's extinguished like a fire, on the other hand it means that he has attained final Nibbana, gone to the Anupati Sesa Nibbana the Nibbana element without any residue of worldly existence of the five aggregates. <coughs> okay, so now the Buddha, after giving the simile of the analogy of the fire, when Bhachagota says that when the fire gets no more fuel, being without fuel, it is reckoned as extinguished. Then now the Buddha continues and he says, So too, Vacha, that material form by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him, by which one pointing out the Tathagata might point him out, that has been abandoned by the Tathagata, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with so that it is no more subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from reckoning in terms of material form. He is profound, immeasurable. The next word actually is better to translate hard to fathom, like the ocean. Not unfathomable, but hard to fathom, like the ocean. And so it is with feeling, perception, the mental formations and consciousness. That consciousness by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him that has been abandoned by the Tathagata, cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with, so that it is no more subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from reckoning in terms of feeling, perception, the mental formations and consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, hard to fathom like the ocean. Okay, this is very difficult passage. Okay, what are these five aggregates that have been abandoned by the Tathagata and cut off at the root? These are the five aggregates which these are the five aggregates which still contain we might call the sap of craving, the sap of clinging. In the case of an ordinary unenlightened person even in the case of 
stream enterers, once returners, non-returners, there is some identification with the five aggregates, some clinging to the five aggregates. And because of that clinging and because of that identification with the five aggregates, we have a personal identity. We are somebody. <laughs> we have say, some foundation on which we have established our sense of personal identity. And so, when one wants to point out who is Mr. Silva or Bhikkhu Tisa or who is so-and-so, then in a sense one could point out that person because there's somebody there, some individual who is, has a sense of his own personal identity and the reason he has that sense of personal identity is because he is identifying with the five aggregates, one or another of these five aggregates. And so one describes the individual in terms of these aggregates. This is, in a sense, the home in which he's living, this personality made up of the five aggregates. And there is some sense in regard to these five aggregates of I am, I am this, I am that. In the case of a worldling, there will be the formation of some personality view, Sakaya Ditti. I am the body, I am feeling, perception, or the, the mental formations, I am consciousness. In different people, there will be a tendency to cling to with, to cling more tightly to different aggregates. But in any case, there is always, because of ignorance and craving, there is some clinging in some way to the five aggregates. And because of that clinging, one could say that there is a personal identity there, or a person with a sense of personal identity somebody who is identifying himself as being this or being that. In the case of the Tathagata, and here the word Tathagata is being used not only to refer to the Buddha, but in a more general sense to any Arahant. In the case of the Tathagata, all eye-making and mind-making in regard to these five aggregates has been given up, eradicated, cast away. That's what the Buddha says in the earlier passage. This was in paragraph 15. He says, with the destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of all conceivings, all eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit this is not simply the conceit of I am better, I am great, but just the simple idea, I am, I am anything at all. All such notions have been cut off at the root by the Tathagata, by an enlightened one. And because of that, we could say that for a Tathagata, the five aggregates themselves, have been cut off at the root. Until he passes away, till his parinibbana, of course the arahant goes on living and he engages in the ordinary activities of day-to-day -day life. He'll have to go to eat his meals, to brush his teeth, he'll have to go to the toilet, He'll have to go to sleep. He'll have to wash and bathe. In the case of the Buddha, he'll go on wandering rounds and teach. And so when an ordinary person looks at an arahant or a tathagata, because he has this 
clinging and grasping to the notions of I and mine within himself, he will understand the personality of the liberated one just as he understands himself. So from the standpoint of the whirling, when he looks at the Tathagata or the Arhat, he sees him as a person, a self, a soul, a substantial entity. But when the enlightened one looks at himself, he has absolutely no notions of I am this or I am that. He does not have any identification with the five aggregates. We could say that the five aggregates are there. They stand in the world, but it's like knocking on the door and <laughs> there's nobody at home. <laughs> the five aggregates are just completely empty. <laughs> and so they are abandoned by the Tathagata. They just stand there, but there's really not even a Tathagata inside them who's identifying with them. It's just like empty aggregates which are occurring in accordance with their conditions. <coughs> and the Buddha uses a simile of the palm stump which is when the palm tree is cut then the stump will no longer grow up again. Actually there's <laughs> some uncertainty whether this means that the stump of the palm tree will not, no longer grow or whether the top that's cut off will no longer shoot out roots and take root again. But anyway if you have a number of palm trees and one of them has the top cut off but if one just is looking at the stumps, they all seem to be, it seems to be the same as the other palm trees. But this palm tree will no longer grow anymore, no longer send out any leaves and any coconuts. And so the Tathagata will no longer shoot out any seeds into any form of new existence. So the five aggregates are done away with so that they are no more subject to future arising. Okay, so then the Buddha continues and says, the Tathagata is liberated from reckoning in terms of material form. He is profound, immeasurable, hard to fathom like the great ocean. And here I think we have to counterbalance the simile of the flame, the fire which has been extinguished, with the simile of the ocean. On the one hand, the fire goes out and disappears, and so one doesn't see it anymore. But the liberated Tathagata is not <laughs> just totally disappeared, but by going out like the fire, he becomes immeasurable like the ocean. And now there's the, the key to this passage, this sentence, I think one finds in a little sutta, or, which comes in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Kanda Sangyutta. I'll write it on the board. Now the statement goes, that to which one tends is that by which one is measured. That by which one is measured is that by which one is reckoned. And then the Buddha continues and says that if one tends to form, material form or body, then one is measured in terms of the body, 
And if one is measured in terms of the body, then one is reckoned by way of the body. And same with feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. And what is meant by this tending, anusaiti, is basically having attachment to or having some clinging for. And so that to which one attached, becomes attached, that is what one is measured by. And so if one clings to the form, then one is measured by form and one is reckoned in terms of form. If one clings to feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, then one is measured in terms of form, feeling, perception, the mental formations, consciousness, and then one is reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. So different people, we could say, have different leanings or tendencies or dispositions to one or another of the five aggregates. For example, some people have their strongest leaning or tendency towards the body. These are maybe the athletic types who are always working out to build up strong and beautiful bodies or beautiful women who always are very concerned with their appearance or always want to look beautiful or just ordinary people who are so identified with the body that they're afraid of growing old and getting sick and dying. And so because of this clinging to the form, to the body, then they are measured in a sense. They're limited by the body. And other people evaluate them as being physical people materialistic people, people who are tied to the body. Other people are not so concerned with the body, but they are living in a world dominated by feeling. They always like to enjoy beauty and to enjoy pleasure. Maybe these will be the sensualists who enjoy the delights of the five senses gourmets, the hedonists, and so they're always pursuing pleasure, always anxious about pain, and so these types of people have their leaning, their disposition, their tendency to feeling, and they are measured by feeling, as they limit themselves because of this attachment to feeling, and because of limiting themselves in that way, they will go to reckoning as, we say, people of feeling, or as, we say, the hedonistic people, or sensualistic people. Then there are some people whose minds tend towards sanya, perception. Maybe these will be, the, on the one hand, aesthetic and artistic types. On the other hand, maybe the types of people who are always seeking to accumulate information, collect widespread knowledge about particular facts. Then there will be other people who identify with the mental formation, maybe particularly volition. These will be the active people, the domineering type of people, the people who are trying always to impose their will on the world, politicians. <laughs> military people, business tycoons, men of action, explorers, adventurers. <laughs> And then there will be people who identify with the aggregate of consciousness, vijnana. Maybe these will be the thinkers and philosophers and the scientists 
who are always trying to open up new gateways of understanding. Maybe creative writers. Okay, and so these people, their tendency is towards perception, or volition, or consciousness. And because of that leaning, that inclination, that attachment to these particular factors of their being, they limit themselves by that, and thereby they are reckoned in terms of it, either as an aesthetic type, as a person of action, or maybe as a thinker. In any case, they are measured in terms of something and reckoned in terms of something. But in the case of the Tathagata, he does not cling to any of the five aggregates. And thereby he is liberated from reckoning in terms of material form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. Now usually one thinks, when one has the sense of I and mine, and one tries to build up one's ego and to assert oneself, one thinks that in this way, one extends the range of one's being. One becomes what they call a big man, or big woman, big chief. One becomes a great person. So somebody will want to become a big business leader or a big political figure or a big military leader in order to bolster their sense of personal identity. And they think that this is the way they become great and vast as a person. But according to the Buddha's teaching, when one identifies oneself in any way, one becomes measurable, which means one is limited. All of these states of clinging and attachment are things which limit the mind, which enclose the mind. And it is when all the clinging to the five aggregates has been eliminated that one becomes truly immeasurable, apameya, like the great ocean. And the Buddha says here, it's not actually unfathomable, unfathomable, but difficult to fathom, hard to fathom. Dupari, dupari yogal. Which means that the Tathagata is not completely unfathomable, <laughs> but he can be fathomed by those who reach his same understanding. That is, the other one arahant can understand the nature of another arahant. And so one arahant, we can say, can fathom another arahant. <laughs> but the ordinary person cannot fathom the nature of the arahant. And so even while he is alive and still existing, the Tathagata is immeasurable and hard to fathom by an ordinary person such as Vachagota. And so if that is the case while he's still alive, then with his passing away, when the five aggregates are completely abandoned, then he's even more difficult to fathom and understand. <laughs> I think what the Buddha is pointing out here, or at least what's implied, is that in the case of the Tathagata, 
while alive what exists are these five empty aggregates then with the passing away or demise of the Tathagata he gives up these five aggregates which no longer arise again and what remains for him is not nothing but the Nibbana element without residue the Anupadi Sesa Nibbana Bhakti and this element of Nibbana this is unconditioned unproduced unoriginated indescribable in terms of any of the concepts of the finite conditioned mind and so for when the Tathagata passes away this is what remains <coughs> and so to say that the Buddha continues to say that he reappears or is reborn after death that does not apply since this question or this position presupposes that the Tathagata is some kind of substantial self which is reborn in some realm after death to say that he is not reborn that he does not reappear this statement comes from the viewpoint again of the Tathagata as some kind of self but a self which perishes completely at death this is the Uchedavada view the annihilationist view the position that he both reappears and does not reappear this is the say a kind of synthetic view which will hold that the Tathagata has two kinds of self one kind becomes eternal and immortal and the other kind is perishable and then the fourth view that he neither is reborn nor does not reborn this is a kind of skeptical or cynical position which just refuses to take any stand on the issue but it's quite different from the Buddha's view which is one of perfect knowledge okay so that takes us through paragraph 20 okay so then when the Buddha has completed this exposition then the wonder of Vachagota is very impressed and he says Master Gotama suppose there were a great solitary not far from a village or a town and impermanence had worn away its branches and foliage its bark and sapwood so that on a later occasion being divested of branches and foliage of bark and sapwood it became pure consisting entirely of the heartwood so this discourse of Master Gotama's is divested of branches and foliage divested in bark of bark and sapwood and is pure consisting entirely of heartwood is what the Buddha has given has been not a kind of what you might call a an expedient teaching or a gradual teaching which has been you know designed just to deal with the subsidiary issues like the practice of giving morality even meditation but rather now with that discourse the Buddha has just really opened up the very heart and core of the Dhamma and shown it directly to Vachagota and so now Vachagota says magnificent Master Gotama magnificent Master Gotama the Dhamma has been made clear in many ways by Master Gotama as though he were turning upright but had been overthrown revealing what was hidden showing the way to one who was lost or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms I go to Master Gotama for refuge and to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of Bhikkhu from today let Master Gotama remember me 
as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge, for life. And so at this point, Vachagota becomes an Upasaka, a lay disciple of the Buddha. Okay, and that will be the end of the explanation of the Agi Vachagota Sutta. Any questions that arose from this discourse? Well, the, the five aggregates are still there. They're still present. And so as long as the body is still there, the body is subject to the um, contact with the different sense objects. And through that contact, different feelings will arise. And so the liberated one will still feel, in the case of illness, severe illness, or feel physical pain. In the case of, um, say, if he is served a delicious meal, he'll taste a delicious food and there'll be a feeling of pleasure coming from the food. And so feelings, perception, consciousness, no thoughts that this is happening to me, these feelings are mine, and so there's no clinging to them. In the case of the painful feelings, there'll be no feeling of mental grief, sorrow, mental stress, unhappiness, sorrow. In the case of the pleasant feelings, there'll be no delight and joy and attachment. But these experiences just come and go. Maybe a good simile is one that comes in the Dhammapada. The Buddha says, he's speaking of the Arhats, he says, their way of living, it's like the flight of birds across the sky, which the birds don't leave any tracks on the sky. <laughs> In the case when there is ground, where animals move across the ground, they'll leave tracks so you can see where this animal, deer has gone and monkey has gone. But when the birds fly across the sky, where they've gone, one can't look at the sky and say <laughs> a flight of birds has gone in this direction or that direction. Except yeah, except the, the advice to Bahia is advice given to somebody who's not yet an Arhant. And in a sense, it's a training to induce the kind of consciousness that an Arhant undergoes. For the Arhant, automatically, there's in the scene, only the scene, and the herd, only the herd. But Bahia, at the time the advice was given, he's not yet an Arhant. So that's why the Buddha says, it is in such a way that you must train yourself. That's the instructions for training. But the Buddha doesn't have to <laughs> he doesn't have to say to Sariputta or Mahapogalana, thus should, should you train yourself. <laughs> In actual fact it's the body that passes away. Or actually it's the five aggregates that break up and dissolve, no more arise again. Even before the enlightenment, Buddha was uh, saying this word, Nibhuta. Nibhuta, he sent a present to somebody who, let's say, Nibhuta, 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 Nib
Okay, then we will continue next week with Sutta number 73.